3: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. Jay.
4: Hi guys, Dr. Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
5: And this is Praz the Sandman, injecting my thick white solution across the radio waves. <laughs> oh,
3: that's so terrible. Let's hold off on any thick white um, eruptions over there, Sandman. And with with February drawing to an end, welcome to spring. And, you know... It's been a few years now since we've started this, Santosh.
4: On a wing and a prayer.
3: We did have a few sound issues early on as we were cutting our teeth in the world of podcasting.
4: Yeah, that's what it sounded like.
3: (laughs) Or didn't. It seemed like the perfect time to come back, retouch a bit on an older topic, and do another around the world in 80 Plagues. I've heard so much about this. I'm very excited. The very first time we talked about the plague of today which is going to be rabies it was in the context of a vacation and the last time you would have heard any of this pause it would have involved somebody who is very well known to the podcast we have him as a guest today may i introduce you both to the infamous the delightful (laughs) my favorite friend ko Uh yay i do exist it's
4: a
2: pleasure to be with you guys
3: for those of you at home, Code does have a first name. I just never use it because we've known each other for far too long. He also calls me by a lot of things that we can't repeat on the radio. Ko, you were the you had a very unique experience when we when we traveled to India that makes you the best person to introduce this episode on rabies, so uh, why don't we start off with our our anti just a tip and hear from you firsthand. What happened in India?
2: Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll stand for all the country bumpkins out there. Representing NorCal, I went to a travel doctor in Oaktown. And this travel doctor about to go out of business, the travel clinic. Uh, took it upon herself to scare the crap out of me with regard to rabies risk. She's like, oh yeah, if you get rabies, you'll die. So you better not get it. And so she explained that, yeah, you'll need to get, uh, you can take that series of four shots before you go, or you can just take the shots after you get back, if you get exposed. And so I had that in the back of my mind, like, stay away from dogs, stay away from monkeys. So we go off to India, we have all the tetanus shots and the hep A, hep B, or whatever all the travel doctor shots are. And so I did get a rabies vaccine. Um, but due to the warnings, I was overly cautious. Well, I wouldn't say overly cautious. I was just trying to take natural precautions.
4: So wait, mm-hmm. and
2: is, so uh, yeah,
4: you you got a rabies series, so it's 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 usually not just one shot, prophylactically.
2: Yeah, I didn't get. See, that's the thing. I did not get the series before I went.
4: Gotcha, gotcha. So
2: okay. I think what that does, what that did, is if I got the series before I went, from what I understood from this wicked uh, travel doctor, then I would have been okay. But I didn't. So I think, you know, I don't I don't I might have gotten one shot which was useless or I might have gotten no shots. I don't remember exactly what happened. All I remember is that we wound up in Nepal and my arm wound up swollen cuz I had to take the series starting in Nepal. Oh, um, no, and now no. that
3: we've now that we've buried the lead a little bit. So <laughs> folks, you know that this is going to end in in needles and pain. But let's get to the fun part. The
2: part that Josh has told and retold in is we were at a temple in Jaipur. So if you've been to India, Jaipur, I believe is known for its silk. One of the places he took us was a monkey temple. And uh, these monkeys, they weren't the friendliest. They had scowls on their faces. There were quite a few of them. And um, somebody, uh, one of the, the temple custodian, gave us some, um, some like pellets of some type. I don't remember what it was exactly. But the idea was to uh, use them to feed the monkeys. And so I'm like, okay, this sounds reasonably fun. And then so Crystal, Ward, and Josh, they all followed instructions. They kept the pellets out of sight of the monkeys. But me being somewhat klutzy and inattentive, I had it exposed in my hand, and I was wearing short sleeves. One of these uh, less polite monkeys jumped at me, tried, tried to get um, the food out of my hand. So that's why the Dodian had told us to keep it uh, under wraps so that they wouldn't do that. But I had left it exposed so they came after me. And so what wound up was I got scratched on my arm, I got scratched on my neck, didn't draw Ooh. blood. But this is where a travel doctor scaring me. If it's just contact, that's okay, but she said if they scratch you and there's red marks, you should get the series right away. And so we're in the we're in Jaipur and the first suggestion was to take a train five hours to Calcutta to so get the series started. So I'm going back and forth and then I call a clinic in Nepal because that was our next stop. The Nepal person says the same thing. Meanwhile, I'm traveling with two doctors here. So Ward and Josh are both like, ah, don't worry about it. You're, you're just too nervous Nelly. And I'm like, all right, so I have two doctors that I don't trust.
3: In case you're confused, he's referring to Ward and I.
2: (laughs) Well, I I trust Ward, but the fact that Ward agreed with Josh, that that, that was a bit of a downer. So I'm like, all right. So let me get a third opinion. Let me get a fourth opinion. So the Nepal Travel Clinic, they're like, yeah, be cautious. Um, Obviously, they have a conflict of interest because it's a $1,500 shot. Whoa. but, so the Nepal travel clinics, yeah, you should probably be cautious. The travel doctor in Oakland, yeah, you should be cautious. So I'm like, "I right, better safe than sorry. I certainly don't want to die in two days. I wound up getting, we didn't go to Calcutta. The Nepal clinic person said, or the doctor there said, all right, you can probably wait a day or two. But I was nervous the whole time. I was staying at least 15 feet away from all dogs. It ruined at least two days of that trip. All because of a couple of monkey scratches. And so the kicker is that Crystal, who's with us, she tells me after I get all the shots that she also got scratched. And she decided to do nothing. <laughs> and she's still alive. So I guess that validates my fear or that I was way too
5: hundred dollars you ever spent. Yeah. yeah. Now the
2: thing is I got I got reimbursed by travel insurance. So and oh, nice. in all it was a wash. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to our early episode called Bite Club. A couple minor corrections or additions to Co's to Co's telling when he called this travel The first thing he did is he did ask both myself and Ward what should we do. And we said, you know, this was an provoked attack. Uh, you know, the monkey just grabbed for your nuts. The the nuts that you were holding in your hand. The bag of them. And and that, <laughs> that was why. Totally so the related. the monkey the monkey made a grab for the, the bag of nuts that had been handed out to each of us. So the monkey grabbed for Coe's nuts and missed, scratched him. He told that perfectly normal the the real beauty of this was in the retelling because As has said, he was somewhat anxious after this. And as we met, he's a very friendly guy, and we kept coming across people, and he would sort of relay this story to them. And each time, uh, the the monkeys got more and more aggressive, moving initially from, oh, I was clumsy, and this monkey scratched me, to, I don't know, they were all scowling, and they seemed pretty violent, to a couple monkeys attacked me. And by the time we hit Nepal, and he was telling the the travel doc, it had almost blown out to the proportions of, you know, there I was, surrounded. Rounded, monkeys to the left of me, monkeys to the right of me, all of them wearing jackets and switchblades. When one of them stabbed me right in the knee, I fell down. I got mugged. They urinated all over my wounds and said, "Now you're gonna get monkey AIDS." I'm paraphrasing, of course, of course. but the first, the first travel nurse, when he refused to believe Ward and I, uh, Ward placed Ward a and call me to refuse to believe us. Cole, <laughs> oh, you didn't believe anybody. No,
2: no, no. Your grammar was incorrect.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was (laughs) fixing your grammar there.
3: When Ward Ward and I (laughs) called Santosh. That's correct. And. Santosh also says, like, well, you know, here's some of these things. That also wasn't going to be good enough for Co. so we both contacted our respective infectious disease departments, all of who said, you know, there are some risks, but if it was a provoked attack, and we'll talk about that later, it's probably okay. The travel nurse was telling him, get on a train five hours to Calcutta and then fly to Australia where they have this serum. And it was actually Ward and me who were telling Co you know, we're going to be in Nepal in a day or two where they have this clinic, just wait. And initially, he didn't want to wait. Eventually, we did convince him, uh, grumbling and upset and just generally not trusting of us the entire way, a, a state of mind which he has remained in for the last 30-some-odd years that I've known him.
2: Short, short, short. It should have been a Ward and I the time you just did. But I, I will say, I will give you credit. I did forget completely about the Australia thing, and you are actually correct. So yes, that was that wow. was kind of crazy. Wow! Okay. This
3: is the beauty. This is the beauty of keeping a travel journal because I did actually write all of this down.
2: Yes, that that is kind of amazing, actually. Yes.
3: Um, so we get to Nepal, and being being a good friend, but at least in in Co's opinion, a terrible doctor, I accompanied him to the clinic, went through the whole series of shots, and he got one series of shots in the paw and then flew back and completed the rest. Now, Co, would you agree that you had, on occasion perhaps, embellished the aggressiveness of the monkeys in subsequent tellings?
2: Uh, not to the degree that you just did. But it was getting up there. Possible. It's possible. I don't, I don't think I did. But I, all I can say definitively is I don't like
5: monkeys. It's a very fair thing to
4: say.
3: We're going to go back and talk about this temple and and some things a little bit later at the end of the episode as a recap of our Just the Tip. But why don't we get into actually talking about rabies? I'm going to start off with history about the rabies virus. It is It has been known for many, many years. And when we're talking... Many. This goes back well into ancient history. AD 79, Pliny the Elder, one of history's first historians, included in a list of rabies cures a recipe for inserting the ashes from a biting dog's tail into the wound. So in theory, if a dog bites you, you pluck some hairs off that dog's tail and you burn them and you smear those ashes and hair into your wound and this is actually where we get the origin of the phrase the old hangover cure is hair of the dog you get a little bit of hair of the dog that bit you yeah so the hair of the dog is actually um, even though now we use it to refer to a hangover cure originally was meant to be a rabies cure dating back to ancient greece it didn't work shocking i know now Another fun little bit of, of history, the Artha Shastra by Kutuya, and that's around 4th century BC, tells how to make a bunch of different kinds of poison arrows, and one called for mixing various toxins with you know, the arrowheads and dipping them in the blood of a angry or rabid dog or a rodent, and they say anyone pierced with this arrow... Will be compelled to bite ten companions, who will each in turn bite ten more people. The implication, of course, being to historians that muskrats and dogs were vectors of rabies in India even back then.
5: Sure, sure. Wow, it sounds like it's some kind of zombie virus. You know, like compels people like bite and eat each other.
3: Uh, well, this is a lot of the fears of zombies did come from versions of the rabies virus, and even the movie Twenty Eight Days Later said they based their their speedy zombies uh, and the rage virus on a mutated form of rabies. Rabies.
4: Oh. And that now, makes, as we move, uh, that makes just a ton of sense because you do have this very slow change in behavior that looks like you are mentally and behaviorally deteriorating. Until you go from human to sometimes, not always, crazy person or possessed person to, if you last through it, if you're not killed by somebody, uh, comatose. And then, you know, finally dead.
2: You sound like my travel doctor. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, actually, I did have a question. Yeah. So, um... So when you go through, like, that, that, that stage where you start to deteriorate, mm-hmm. in my understanding that, that that's actually a fairly accelerated process. It happens very, very quickly if you're not treated. So is, right. does, does that it, vary it, in terms it, of really, really fast, yeah.
3: When, it, when only- it starts, yeah. When the symptoms start to happen, they progress very quickly. But uh, they take a long time. Potentially to begin, and we will talk about that a little bit. And this is why Ward and me were both uh, counseling. Aye, aye. Oh. Yes, that's why we know you.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: the right, beauty.
2: Yeah. Well, well, I'll give you a grammar lesson offline, man. Don't worry about it.
3: <laughs> the real, the real beauty of this is that he doesn't realize I'm purposely using the wrong one every single time, consistently, <laughs> right. because I know his level of grammar.
5: <laughs> oh, so mean.
3: So, if we move forward, one of my favorite theories for rabies was in, of course, the Victorian era, because when else would it be? Mm -hmm. But in the 1830s, a British lecturer put forward the theory that rabies was spontaneously generated in male dogs that are kept from having sexual intercourse. The opposite of an STD. Some some high muckety-muck in Victorian Britain basically said rabies is because of blue balls in dogs. This also was not true, but the first person to really study it was Louis Pasteur, and that was in 1885. So, Louis Pasteur, we of course all know from pasteurization, but what you probably don't know is that previously he worked as a chemist and biologist, working a lot with animals. He had created two vaccines before he began his more well-known work. Uh, the first vaccine was for chicken cholera. The second was for bovine anthrax. And because of these zombie-like appearance things that we've been talking about, Victorian England was terrified of rabies they didn't know how it started they only knew it transmitted from bites and it caused rapid changes and violence and no cures so louis Pasteur decided his third animal vaccine was going to be trying to treat dogs for rabies and He chose to work on it specifically based on that terror. He kept kennels of mad dogs to test it on, and then one day, parents of a nine-year-old boy brought their son to this clinic with with Mr. Pasteur, and they said he had been bitten by a dog who they worried had been violent. Would he please do something, anything? And he basically said, well, I've only been testing this on animals so far, and he initially resisted, but they were just so – Desperate, that he eventually agreed, and that boy not only survived the shot, uh, but grew up to become the janitor at the Pasteur Institute and continued to hold Mr. Pasteur in high esteem until the day that he died. Oh. Um, so this was an, the very first vaccine, which you might be interested to know – Came from, it was developed by two people, Louis Pasteur and his assistant, Emile Roux. The grad students never get any credit.
1: Their (laughs) original
3: vaccine (laughs) was harvested. (laughs) Their original vaccine was harvested from infected rabbits, uh, which the virus in the nerve tissue was weakened by allowing it to dry for five to ten days. So it was just a weaker version of the live virus. That's what we call an attenuated vaccine these days and some of these nerve tissue derived types vaccines are still used in some countries as they're much cheaper but keep in mind he took this vaccine he injected this boy with basically very weak version of rabbit rabies now if you're wondering well how bad could rabies be in a rabbit i would like to refer you to Monty Python's search for the holy grail <laughs> the scene with that's not just any rabbit it's the most vicious rodent alive <laughs>
4: I love that rabbit. That, that rabbit just rocks my
3: world. So now that we've talked a little bit about the, the history, and we know the transmission is spread when an infected animal scratches or bites another animal or human. Now, interestingly, this is one of the diseases that saliva from an infected animal can also transmit rabies if just the saliva comes into contact with the eyes, mouth, or nose. Usually when we think about transmissible diseases, we're worried about blood transmission, skin transmission, but this is one of the few that transmits through saliva, um, and that's why the bites are so dangerous. Now, bites bites from mice, rats, or squirrels rarely require rabies prevention because most rodents who have rabies are usually killed by any encounter with the larger rabid animal. You know, if you have a rabid dog or a bear or something, it's not going to just bite a rat and walk away. It's going to murder it. Uh, Transmission between humans is also pretty rare. The only documented cases of rabies from human to human has nothing to do with bites. It was eight people who received transplanted corneas, and three people who received solid organs, I believe two livers and one kidney. Um, And these were all from people who had been carrying the rabies virus when they died, and it was not known that they were infected when their organs were taken from transplant.
4: Right, and um, Josh, we should say, that didn't all happen, like, on the same day. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, that'd be a terrible day. There are cases that have been recorded, so... When we get into transplant infectious diseases, we are always very alert when the donor has any history of altered mental status, meaning that they are behaving differently or having trouble thinking or they became slowly comatose. Any of this kind of higher neurological function, if it deteriorates this way, we, we do think of rabies as one thing that's going on, but there could actually be several other types of infections or toxins, and that, therefore, should make them not a, a, a good donor. So we, we take them off the list um, if we hear about anything like that. And we'll even cancel organ donation if, you know, in the midst of transporting an organ or something like that, we get a report like, oh, donor had altered mental status.
5: Not attributable to any other cause. Like obviously they had brain damage or something. Well
4: yeah yeah. yeah. I mean if yeah if they were slowly deteriorating and they had a massive head injury and that's why they're donating, uh yes, I I can agree with that process But if they had, you know, kind of any any reports that they had slow deterioration over a course of time even if the cause of death is completely unrelated like trauma then we do go back and say oh there's something suspicious in the history it is really really rare for something like this to happen um, that you're talking about josh and usually it's not even a consideration because the need for the transplant is so much more uh, imminent than the risk of something like rabies so it's it's that rare but we always keep it in the back of our minds if the donor has um, altered mental status.
3: Now that we've kind of talked a little bit about the etymology, um, let's move on briefly to the epidemiology, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Santos, because, of course, as our infectious disease doc, uh, you're going to be our go-to expert, oh, and the, it has the added bonus of Co will actually trust you. It's, oh, yeah, definitely. Is, <laughs> so rabies is caused by the the lyssa virus. Now, rabies itself is Latin for madness. This may be related to the Sanskrit word rabas, which means to do violence, and the Greeks used the word lyssa from lewd or violent. And lyssa was a a Greek deity, a Greek god who basically was in charge of madness. Um, Lyssa was the one who caused Hercules to become mad with rage and murder his wife and child. She also uh, came across the hunter Actaeon, who spotted Artemis bathing naked in the lake, and Lyssa inflicted the hunter's dogs with rabies, and they became mad and tore him apart because you don't bathe on women if they don't know you're there. That's just wrong. (laughs) Um, so, Lyssavirus literally means enraging virus. Uh, so a little bit of Greek history for you. Now, who really is transmitting rabies? Of course, the most common carrier around the world is dogs. But in America, it's, we really haven't seen any dog cases, aside from a few scattered ones, since about 2007. And the major carrier in, um, in the Americas is bats, which is why I believe Batman's ultimate enemy is really himself, uh, because Batman would 100% have gotten rabies over the course of his crime fighting. And we'll talk about that and why a little bit later. Uh, But about less than 5% of cases in America are from dogs. Around the world, dogs are the most common carrier. In the Midwest, skunks are the next biggest carrier. And in the Northeastern US, it's raccoons. Now. A lot of countries have taken different approaches to try and eliminate this, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. I just want to mention that my absolute favorite is Switzerland, because the disease has been virtually eliminated after scientists placed chicken heads laced with the vaccine all around the Alps. They just scattered chicken heads, and uh, the foxes, who were the main source of rabies in Switzerland, ate the chicken heads, immunized themselves. So that's, that's my fun... On tip of the day. But, Santosh, tell us about the pathophysiology. What are the signs and the symptoms of rabies? How long does it take to take effect? How much concern did did Co really need to have?
4: Sure. So, number one, we should focus on the, the primary vector in rabies, which is the bite. It's saliva. That's really where the rabies virus likes to hang out and it gets transmitted from saliva through a wound into bare nerve endings where it does something very, very strange. Um, There's a few, few viruses that do this, but it will piggyback on the retrograde, meaning moving backwards system of a nerve, and it'll start to move Backwards, uh, you know, usually the pain signals do go up, you know, your arm, but usually the way that you move your arm is that an impulse comes from your brain and spinal cord down to the muscle and you move it. But here it piggybacks and starts moving backwards. And it'll go up, backwards, up to the spine. This sounds really creepy. It's like an earwig type of thing. The virus will move backwards, it'll get into the central nervous system through large nerve roots up into the brain and then it will start to work it's really dire magic and uh, you'll get to the final stages which is you know kind of that crazy insanity and then death
3: uh, well I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you just briefly to put some some time frames on these yes, yes. as long as you're talking about yes. So the period between infection and the first symptoms, sure. which is what we call the incubation period uh, is usually anywhere That's from one to three months like You're hatching something. Yeah, so it's usually about one to three months in, in humans. Now, this period has been as short as four days, and longer than six years have both been documented, depending on where the bite is and how deep the bite goes, the amount of virus introduced. Um, and, and but it, typically, it's about one to three months.
4: And you can imagine and, this is variable, right? Because say something bites you on your toe that's a long way for Lysa virus to travel all the way up through your toe and leg and, and get up into your brain versus if you're bitten higher up, say, up on your arm or your shoulder. And uh, the other issue which really confounds this is, Josh, you were talking about uh, bats that like to transmit in the Americas. Um, well, it turns out that the Bite of, especially the vampire bat, or many species of vampire bats, are anesthetic. You don't feel anything. So, a lot of the time, we actually don't know when the virus is introduced.
3: So, you're telling me that we could also call Praz Batman, as well as Sandman?
5: We totally could. <laughs> I'm definitely using that as my next introduction. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, we could. We, there, there, are so, there are so many blood-feeding creatures out there that put some anesthetic into the skin so that the victim doesn't know that they're being fed on. But vampire bats are one of them, actually. they'll, Whether they're feeding on a cow or a human being, their saliva contains just a little bit of anesthetic. They don't suck the blood up um, like you would typically talk about. They make a small puncture wound. Their saliva provides a little bit of anesthesia on there so you don't feel the poke. And then they lap up the blood a little bit like a dog drinking water from a water bowl.
3: You you wonder why is this incubation period so long? How fast does this virus really travel? Surely someone must have studied this, right? Well, good news, they did. Yeah. And this was actually published in PLUS. So, Santosh, I know you love PLUS One. This is uh, PLUS Pathogens, uh, should, which is an open access journal.
4: Right, we should pronounce it properly. It's plus. PLOS.
3: P-L-O-S. Right, PLOS. <laughs> now they did a study and this was way back in in August of 2014 and managed to actually quantify that the average speed, uh, with some minor variations, of the rabies virus, it moves at about eight centimeters, which is a little bit more than three inches a day. So again, if you get bitten on your foot, it's going to take a lot more than a month to etch when you're only traveling three inches a day. Right. Most people are taller yeah. than three inches. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I guess midgets, midgets might have a shorter course, but
4: <laughs> oh god. You're gonna- I don't know, man. You want me
2: to start challenging your math now, too? (laughs) (laughs) So 72 divided by three It's about a month, bro.
4: Crunch it. Crunch it, Co. Crunch those numbers. Up to.
3: Up to three inches a day, Co. And you also have to keep in mind, the nerves are not taking the most direct route. Like, your nerves are not laid from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet in a single straight line. There are multiple branching... There are multiple branching pathways, and it has to jump from nerve to nerve. There's not one nerve that travels with the exception of your spinal cord. There is not a single nerve that connects from your brain directly. There are stops along the way.
2: Back when uh, Santosh was saying that the – at least from monkeys, it's mainly in the bite and through the saliva. Oh, through,
4: through so pretty, pretty much when, any animal. Pretty, I, I can't oh, think any, of it.
2: Yeah, so even if it's a bat. Yeah, so let's say it's a bat. So when, when my travel doctor or any other doctor says if you get scratched and it draws blood, is the risk there because they've licked their hands or something like that or is there also alternate methods outside of just the bite and saliva?
3: Why can it be transmitted through a scratch?
4: Well, it really is a theoretical risk. I don't think it's ever been really documented. But yeah, the animals are sticking their hands in their mouths all the time. Um, But the truth is, we don't know how long the virus can last just kind of sitting on a paw or a claw. So Mm. it, it actually really doesn't like sitting out on bare surfaces. It is not like... For instance, the flu virus or other cold viruses, which can last on surfaces, and you know this is why we tell people don't wipe your nose and then touch a doorknob or something like that, because <laughs> ah, okay. you, know, you can okay. you can transmit it this way. This is a rather labile virus. It it when it's exposed to air and open surfaces, if it's not within a liquid like saliva or getting into the bloodstream or or traveling inside of a body. It tends to be rather fragile. Really. I learned something
2: today, Doc. Yeah,
4: so it, it really is a theoretical risk. But I think that more than anything, what the physicians were thinking was, oh, this guy told me that he got, you know, attacked by a monkey. He was scratched. It, <laughs> may, have been, well, it may have been that he got bitten and he didn't notice. And that's a very, okay. very fair assumption for someone to make in the case of a young man in Texas who died of rabies, and when his family and
0: he was asked... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello,
4: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. About any exposure to any animals, they said, no, he wasn't bitten, nothing happened. But it so happened that woke up one night and there was a bat that had flown in through an open window and was just kind of flying around and nobody thought of that as an exposure because it didn't land on the kid or it didn't bite him or anything like that but again it was an encounter with an animal who uh, carried rabies so we, uh, we do have kind of a high index of suspicion when someone says they were touched or scratched or attacked if, if the the patient is worried, or if they're in an endemic area, or if it's a high-risk animal, like a bat in the Americas, or a skunk, then we'll say, I don't care what you said, you said you encountered this animal, we're going to give you the shots.
3: Once symptoms actually start, uh, death usually occurs two to ten days after the first symptoms The second stage after the incubation period is known as the excitative stage. That lasts about three to four days, or it's also known scientifically by another name, which I think is way better, the furious stage. And this virus, once it reaches that point, moves fast and furious.
4: (laughs) How
2: long have you been waiting to say that one?
4: About three years. (laughs) The reason for this is that... nerves, which are capable of a lot faster transport than the peripheral nerves. What
5: are the chances are that um, somebody who is infected can spread it through sex, or kissing for that matter, if their saliva got infected?
4: Uh, So, by the time it gets to a human being's saliva, you're pretty much going to steer clear of them, I would hope. Um, They're not one of the...
3: Praz, would you have sex with a zombie (laughs) prostitute? Because that's effectively...
4: (laughs) That's a. Fa- I mean,
3: you're you're right. Yes, it could be transmitted through through semen and vaginal fluids. That is possible. But in order to achieve that level where it could be infected, that person would be literally trying to tear out your throat.
4: Right. Uh, and so this, yeah, this isn't one of those fifty things- shades
3: fifty shades of gray. Aside, it's going to be a really oh, difficult transmission.
4: Oh, you like to nip? Huh? It's not. It's not. Uh, it's, it's, Didn't that
5: happen in The Walking Dead? No, no. no.
4: <laughs> this, is, this is old Yeller style. And the truth of the matter is um, it, it, a human being, unlike an animal, they're going to get agitated and combative, but they're not going to get in a, in a phase where they're going to come after you and bite like a mindless person. They're going to fight and kick and kind of scream. Um, In that kind of a thing. But in fact, their motor nervous system, probably by the time that the rabies virus has gotten to their saliva, has migrated up and then gotten into their salivary glands and is excreting, they're probably going to have problems with paralysis and rigidity. They're not going to be able to attack you or bone you very well. I'll bite your kneecaps off. <laughs> <laughs> they're
5: gonna, yeah, they're
4: going to be more twitchy and angry than like screamy zombies. We talked about
3: some of the symptoms, Santos. You know, we we of course see non-specific things like fever and headache. What are some of the other symptoms?
4: Right. So we should actually distinguish uh, two different types of rabies. There's encephalitic rabies, which is the classic presentation, and the second one I'll talk about is called paralytic rabies. So encephalitic rabies has kind of a a host of things that go along with it, which are very classic of what you hear about in stories or what you see in the movies. So one is hydrophobia. If people try to drink, it's about in 33 to 50 percent of patients, they feel like they're going to gag or choke and you give them any liquids to drink and instead of soothing their thirst, they'll go and they'll gag and they'll say, I don't want anything. Also progress from there to actually aerophobia, where if they feel a draft going down their throat, like if it's a windy day or a breezy day, they'll get pharyngeal spasms. And this is all from the motor nerves in their throat that control these muscles that help us swallow and breathe they spasm involuntarily the facial muscles contract and that's that trismus, that's that rabies grin and this is called opos the <laughs> i always get it wrong we hardly ever say it
3: it looks like a rage face
4: right. you, you are, you're smiling but you're also in rage, kind of thing and you can't control it the autonomic nerves in about a quarter of patients you'll have instability there so you'll be over salivating that's the foaming at the mouth lacrimating so you'll be tearing sweating you'll have goosebumps all over your skin, dilation of the pupils, uh, almost like you're on uh, Molly or some other drug. And then people will complain early on, and it'll get worse and worse of the nerves that take care of your eyes, your mouth, your throat, just deteriorating. So problems with your jaw, problems with your eyes, vertigo, vertigo, so they'll have trouble keeping their balance um, and then finally, it'll go to agitation and combativeness about half the time. But the other half the time, there'll be no agitation or combativeness at all. And they'll go into either hyper excitability or disorientation, which means, you know, any little thing will set them off or, or freak them out. Um, but they'll just kind of twitch. And that'll go to hallucinations and then coma. And it'll go to calmness. And death so these are all of the steps where you know they'll kind of deteriorate and then they'll get finally vascular collapse so the nerves that try to keep our blood vessels nice and toned so that blood flows to our vital organs they that collapse is kind of like um, you know like a, a blown tire that's 80% of people will follow this kind of encephalitic pattern The paralytic pattern is a little bit different. Um, Guys, you guys know about Guillain-Barre syndrome, ascending weakness, Um, where you'll get paralyzed. So Josh, this is kind of interesting. As the rabies virus travels up the nerve, rather than this phase of like prodrome where we see nothing and then they go into an encephalitic phase, they will look like Guillain-Barre. They'll have ascending weakness Um, and they won't have, like, the cerebral involvement where they'll have this, you know, rage and agitation and stuff. They will look like they're just getting weak until they get so weak that they get comatose and die. Um, And for the world, you know, they might just have Guillain-Barre. And if you didn't think to look for rabies, you would never know.
3: Now, one of the things you mentioned in in the hydrophobia... uh, the the leading theory for the cause of this hydrophobia has a lot to do with the fact that the virus multiplies and assimilates in salivary glands for the purpose of further transmission through biting. So if you didn't have hydrophobia and you could drink saliva and water and all that, well, if you're swallowing your saliva, which you do involuntarily and naturally throughout the day, the virus is going into your stomach where your stomach acid will kill it. So this hydrophobia is the virus hijacking your own body to prevent you from getting any kind of fluid And therefore, the saliva gets out. So that's sort of the leading theory. It has not been 100% proven, but the physiology uh, works out.
4: It's ingenious. This is one of these, you know, almost parasitic organisms which knows exactly how to hijack its host.
3: How do you detect this, you know, prior to the foaming at the mouth stage? When you worry about it, you're looking for provoking attacks because animals won't always be straight foaming at the mouth. Uh, they may just be more aggressive or more likely to kind of run up and scratch somebody, or if you catch someone who's being more aggressive, they do an autopsy and they look at the brain and that's that's great. It's one there's a type of cell that you'll see in the brain called a Negri inclusion body that is 100% diagnostic for rabies infection, but only found in about 80% of cases and only found on autopsy. So not an ideal test for humans.
4: No. <laughs> you, you want to avoid post-mortem diagnosis as much as possible, uh, which is the first thing we learned in medical school. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> so, Santos, how do you test... How do you test for rabies if you suspect it? Right.
4: So the main tissues that we go for are saliva, uh, skin biopsy, and then actually testing uh, either the serum or the blood or the cerebrospinal fluid. Those are the three types of samples that you want to go for. And we go with uh, antibody testing. For one modality, so to see if you're generating antibodies against the virus and that's usually in the cerebrospinal fluid and that's usually done through a lumbar puncture um, or in the serum. The other modality is called polymerase chain reaction or PCR which amplifies the genetic material of the virus in a test tube so you can detect it and confirm its presence that way. It's really really bad if it's already detectable in the saliva. And it's really, really bad if it's already detectable in a skin biopsy uh, where we, we actually take the posterior region of the neck at the hairline because, as we were talking about before, the rabies virus does move retrograde or upwards through the nerve fibers, and one of the areas where it prominently passes through is the nerves that go right under your neck and through the scalp, and then ultimately get to the brain that way. So we have uh, just a, a punch biopsy that you take, which is a full thickness skin biopsy. And that doesn't
3: mean you sock the patient in no, the not. face and then get their blood. <laughs>
4: it's, it's five to six millimeters in diameter. And uh, the sample actually is really, really, you have to be really careful to get... Um, at least 10 hair follicles, and the reason for that is because the cutaneous nerves run right by the hair follicles. So that's a a great place to do it. We we place it on sterile gauze, and then we take it off um, to actually detect the virus in there, both by PCR and by labeling the, the virus with antibodies under a microscope, and they'll actually light up with uh, fluorescent antibodies if they're present. Now, the problem with these... And this
3: method of testing problem. is known as uh, FAT. Not pretty hot and tempting, but actually <laughs> F-A-T. F-A-T for <laughs> fluorescent antibody testing. Right. So they glow with if it does have rabies.
4: Right, exactly. And you... That is a technically kind of difficult test because there is things like background fluorescence and things like that, so a skilled microscopist has to do that properly, whereas PCR is a little less technically demanding. You can literally grind up the tissue and put it in, and you run the detection, and if it's positive, it's positive. it's negative, it's negative. The problem with all of these is, though... If it's detected, and if it's detected especially in the saliva, it's too late. Um, it's As far as we have gotten technologically, we've, we've noticed or noted that about 100% of people who've been diagnosed with rabies at this point die. The truth of the matter is, the best diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis before any symptoms have ever shown up, meaning that a person has come to you saying that they've been exposed to an animal that is likely to carry rabies, and they have or have not been vaccinated, and they have their vaccination history, and you respond immediately by giving RIG, which is rabies immunoglobulin or rabies antibody, um... And, and uh,
3: vaccine? This is because occasionally rabies immunoglobulin and the vaccine can be effective in preventing the disease. Uh, one, if the person receives treatment before the start of rabies symptoms, and treatment after exposure can still even prevent the disease if administered promptly. And promptly means usually within about 10 days of infection. Uh, so the first thing we say is always, you know, same as with any cut, any wound, you want to wash and bite any scratch, or you want want to wash any bite and scratch, you don't want to wash and bite it, Uh, you want to wash, (laughs) you want to wash any bites or scratches for 15 full minutes with soap and water, iodine, or a detergent to reduce the number of viral particles, then co-took the pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is usually uh, four doses, sometimes five, over a 14-day period. Now, post-exposure prophylaxis is a little bit different. Co, you actually got the post-exposure prophylaxis. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? What did they do?
2: Oh, you mean the one in Nepal
3: is what that? Yeah, yeah. What did yeah, you do so in Nepal happened. and Oakland?
2: Yeah. So the thing is, I did not. I don't think I got the pre-exposure. Right.
3: Correct. That would have been or what more the more, that would have been what the travel nurse rec- recommended, and you said initially, no, I think I'll be okay. I'd rather. Uh, I'd rather take my chances. And then what you did is you got the scratch and you went for post-exposure. That
2: is, yeah. They stuck a needle in me and they were injecting a bunch of liquid, which I assume is the rig. Right. And it was like 1,500 cc's or some crazy amount like that. And it basically created a massive bulge right around my forearm, elbow area. Oh, yeah.
4: Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, that was
2: was kind of, yeah, I felt a a little misshaped. (laughs) <laughs> to say the least, it was kinda weird.
3: <laughs> I have a picture of it and I actually oh, no, have dude. a surprising oh, no. I have a surprising number of pictures of Coe's injuries because I like oh, to document oh, him oh. on our trips. <laughs> oh, <boy. Uh-oh.
4: laughs> so this is this is important to note though because so what we say and it, it sounds almost a little, you know, espionagey, but you want to infiltrate the wound <laughs> with immune globulin. So you're you're taking the needle and you're trying to get as much immune globulin right around that wound as you can because you want it to act right where the virus is entering.
3: Right. And that's why in Co's in case, this happens to be injected uh, into the arm because that's where he was scratched. So the, f- the first dose, as much as possible of the rig, should be injected around the bites with the rest being given by a deep injection at a site distant from the vaccination site. So you want to kind of cover all your possible entry points. Uh, the first dose of the vaccine is given as soon as possible after exposure, meaning within that 10 days of infection period. With additional doses on days 3, 7, 7, 14, and potentially 28. So if you received the pre-exposure vaccination, you don't get the immunoglobulin, the RIG. Since Ko had not received pre-exposure, he did get the RIG, and then the remaining four doses. Now, this happens to fall in between his being in Nepal and his returning to the West Coast. And that's why the remainder of those shots were in Oakland. And those would have been the rabies vaccine so what was that like where did those shots go how did they feel
2: frankly i don't remember <laughs> all i remember is that the that travel that travel clinic went under they closed down right after it seemed like a pretty typical shot now.
3: aside from putting it at the side of the bite usually the vaccination is given in the the deltoid shoulder area it used to be given in the gluteal area which is of course you're behind now this has been associated with vaccination failure this is a little embarrassing. It's specifically laid out in American protocols to not give it into the gluteal area because the injection into fat rather than muscle has been associated with vaccination failure, and many Americans are obese, especially in the gluteal area. In infants, they recommend the lateral thigh. This is a series of four shots. The the one that was done back in Pasteur's Day and even up until I'd say probably the late 1970s and for in some cases still around the world is a much worse one in the sense that it is a series of 26 injections over 28 days, uh, which are shot directly into the stomach. Now, any of you who have recently stayed in a hospital and maybe had abdominal injections of something called Lovenox, which is a a blood thinner to prevent blood clots, um, imagine if you had to get one of those every day, much deeper, with a much larger needle, leaving a big sort of fluid bubble, and you knew that was going to happen every day for a month and still might not protect you, and you can imagine why. Not the most popular treatment. So these are ones that are still known to work if they reach you in time. So the question is, you know, let's say you didn't get this post-exposure prophylaxis and you didn't know these things. Really, is there anything that can be done? Well, Santosh is right in that, by and large, this still remains 100% fatal. But there have been about six or seven people who have survived. And I'd like to talk about what was involved in that and it, they received a very experimental treatment known as the Milwaukee Protocol. And when I say experimental, we know six people have survived who have been treated, and we still not are entirely sure that it's due to this. So this protocol began back in 2004 when a young girl was bitten by or was scratched by a bat. This wasn't found out till later, and... This infectious disease doctor in Milwaukee was just as stumped as any of us would be. But after reading a ton, he began to develop the beginnings of a theory, which basically he felt that the rabies wasn't actually killing by destroying the neurons or causing inflammation in the brain. That's how most viral encephalitis infections cause death. His theory went the rabies really affects neurotransmission meaning the communication that takes place between cells and as a result of these cells being overexcited it's he thought the disease sends the brain into overdrive causing its cells to outstrip their energy supply and eventually die. Now there was some very very early studies that you know would have led him to this but nothing has been proven one way or the other. However, Confronted with the choice of certain death or a theory that we can attempt to do something about, he opted to go for the experimental treatment. So what he created is he said, okay, this is a disease that sends the brain into overdrive and overexcitation. So He gave her ketamine, which is a tranquilizer and sedative. The original Milwaukee protocol was ketamine, midazolam, ribavirin, and amantadine. And this was two sedatives to keep the patient calm and two antivirals, and they put her into an induced coma with the theory that if we could keep her sedated, her own immune system would eventually be able to build up the reserves to fight the infection off. Now, a second version of the protocol has since omitted the use of ribavirin. So since its inception, two out of 25 patients survived when treated with the first protocol. Right. Okay. Uh, two out of 10 additional patients survived under the revised protocol. Ketamine he chose because not only would it keep the brain in a state of coma, but a 1992 study on rats showed some small antiviral effects against rabies. So he's like, well, it worked in rats let's see what happens so after 31 days of isolation and 76 overall days of hospitalization um, this girl survived all higher level brain functions intact but she did have an inability to walk and balance and had to uh, really kind of relearn how to do a ton of things again almost like she had suffered a major stroke or been newborn now an intention-to-treat analysis has since found this protocol has a survival rate of about 8%. Only five people on Earth that we know of has survived a rabies infection after showing symptoms, and they have all undergone this protocol. This is not something that is recommended. It is incredibly expensive. It is not even guaranteed that the protocol itself is having any true effect. It's just, at this point, the only real thing we have. So most of the disease prevention has focused on treating the animals with rabies before they get a chance to bite somebody.
5: How long do they have to remain sedated for this, out of curiosity? Under
3: the Milwaukee protocol? Yeah. They basically are put in an induced coma until they start showing signs of improvement or die. So it is an indefinite coma. As an anesthesiologist, pros, how long can you keep somebody under on things like ketamine and
5: verset? Well, so drugs like ketamine and verset we can use we use regularly in relatively small doses without much issue. One of the concerns we have is that these drugs in high doses with prolonged administration or infusion can be neurotoxic in their own right. And so I could sort of see why when this girl woke up, eventually part of the reason why she may have had some neurologic issues might have been because of prolonged coma. I mean, these days our guidelines tell us to to get patients off a sedition as quickly as possible. So understandably, given the circumstances, you do what you have to do, but there's definitely a lot of bad effects that could come out of it.
3: That's kind of everything we really know about rabies and really most of the the treatment focuses more on prevention rather than anything so i want to i want to take you back to india briefly because there's been a couple laws and developments in the country since then that i think you'll be pleasantly surprised uh, to hear about Co. and as late as as 2015 Um, India's so-called monkey menace was set to become a public finance crisis. There was a show made for Discovery Channel that actually followed around bands of the monkeys at this temple and saw that they were becoming more aggressive, and even all over – India, this particular species of monkey, the rhesus monkey, has been a reservoir for rabies, and even when they're not, they're frequently running around biting people and generally making a nuisance of themselves. So India's India's uh, method to, to handle this was to put it on the government, and it became a public finance crisis when... The High Court ruled all victims of monkey and dog attacks who suffered bites have to be paid £2,000 in compensation, which is more than two years' wages for most Indians,
1: How at least in rural guy. areas.
3: Um, and this happened when after, in 2007, Delhi's deputy mayor was killed when he fell from his balcony following a monkey attack. Officials have tried putting monkeys on the pill by mixing contraceptive medicines into food left for them. And my all-time favorite, they deployed larger, more aggressive langur monkeys to scare the smaller rhesus macaque monkeys away. So, of course, it only You're took about dangerously
2: a dangerously close to an economic comparison so with <laughs> that.
3: So that's even better. As if, as if bringing in larger, more aggressive monkeys to scare smaller monkeys away and uh, drugging monkeys with contraception wasn't going to work, the city came to the realization that this was probably not the best plan after about six months. So, what did the Delhi government do? They fired all the Langer monkeys, and they actually used the word "fired" in the article. And then they hired young men dressed in Langer monkey costumes instead. <laughs> Now imagine there is a a thriving market for we would like you to dress up in this monkey suit and run around chasing monkeys away so they don't bite other people. Um, They'll be scared of you because you look like a larger, more aggressive monkey.
4: Wow, that's awesome. That sounds real scientific to me.
5: I could see the job having a lot of hazards for being infected (laughs) themselves.
4: Sounds like it was taken right out of a Simpsons episode.
3: We're going to wrap it up with just a very brief just-the-tip, um, one from me and one from Co, who has been a really good sport about this and who hopefully feels a little more confident in, in my abilities after all these years. I won't yeah, hold it against five, five, him five if percent. he
2: doesn't. 5% okay. an hour, that's not too bad.
3: All right. That's an improvement. So our Just the Tip this week in India is the Temple of Galtaji. Uh, now, Galtaji is where we had actually gone. It's an ancient Hindu pilgrimage site about 10 kilometers away from the city of Jaipur, which is in the Indian state of Rajasthan. The temple consists of a series of temples built into a narrow crevice, and there's several water pools, and each pool is supposed to be holy and provide a different sort of blessing for you, so people will make this pilgrimage and sort of climb up and bathe in each of the pools, which, I'll tell you right now, I would not recommend. That water looked filthy for anyone in it. Uh, In addition to the numerous Indian people bathing in it, the monkeys have claimed, these rhesus monkeys have claimed large portions of this temple and several of these pools for themselves and that's led to an association of this temple with hanuman who is a major religious figure in hinduism
4: oh thank you so many people mistake him for a god and you actually like you gave him the right title thank you so much the
3: temple itself is gorgeous and as long as you do take whatever appropriate precautions such as holding any any bags of snacks away and out of sight <laughs> of the monkeys I, um i would these still
4: are intelligent little creatures so it, it really they need, they need to not know that you have snacks so you can't be like oh they saw it but i'll just you know put it in my fanny pack they will open your fanny pack
3: I would still say it is worth going to. Now, if you'd like to view it from the safety of your television without visiting it in person, National Geographic directed a series known as um, Rebel Monkeys or Monkey Thieves in, in Hindi. And it followed around. It followed around the Galta Gang, a sixty-strong monkey troop that lives in the Galta Temple. That was the monkeys that we interacted with, and I'm pretty sure I saw the one who attacked you, Ko, yeah. uh, as as one of the enforcers of this troop. You can go back and point him out and be like, you know, that was that was the man. Now, Bastard. far be it far be it from me to give Ko a hard time for hating monkeys, as. It is well known on this podcast that I have a fully justified hatred of most sea life. I'm choosing to call Ko's attacker the monkey named Anoop because it's funny. Um, But they did name every member of this Galta gang. Before we wrap up, Ko, um, let's go away from India a little bit. Why don't you tell us one of your favorite travel stories from anywhere you've been? Where would you recommend people do go as opposed to monkey-infested Galtaji Temple?
2: I would say the other thing is uh, I think they've renamed themselves but when we were in Melbourne uh, it was called Warbird Adventures I think it's now called Adventure Flight Company and our buddy Ward went surfing instead Um, but I think that was a big miss on his part so I would say that definitely do that if you're ever in Melbourne Adventure Flight Company they take you up in like I think World War II planes and the G-Force is just tremendous. It's actually kind of crazy. Um, that would, I think that would be number one. And then the, uh, I'll leave it at one. I'll save the other one for next time. Nice.
3: Oh, there's going to be That's a next time.
2: Cool. Yeah, when we talk about Glow Worm.
3: That wraps up this particular episode of Around the World in 80 Plagues. Thank you so much for coming on and letting us poke a little bit of fun at Yuko, and for poking fun right on back.
5: Hey, it wasn't
2: so bad. It wasn't so bad. Good for you doing this for three yeah. freaking years.
4: It's keys to the left of me. Monkeys to the
3: right. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me, With the help, with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories, thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye
4: guys.